Great. Um, thanks for having us. It's uh, it's it's always fun to to get together. Ian, Cedric, and I are sort of the the three mold principles. Um, so to to get us all with the opportunity to, to chat together is um, uh, not only fun for us, but hopefully valuable for the audience. So. Um, I won't go through our backgrounds extensively. That's that's really being done. Um, but please feel free to, to read through them when you get the slide pack at the end. But between the three of us, um, we see a lot of different kinds of, of mold in a lot of different settings. And what I'd like to do today, instead of having a, a straight sort of lecture style, is um, I'm going to be in control of the slides. But we're going to try to do it as a bit more of a discussion. I'd really like to have the opportunity for the three of us to share our experiences um, on site and on remediation projects that go well, that go poorly, and, and hopefully provide the audience with a bit of an opportunity to uh, dig into the topics they find most interesting. We're going to try to brush over a lot of the concepts. And then if there's things that really interest people, we can go back and visit them a little bit more. There'll be a few case studies that um, hopefully sort of illustrate some of the points we're going to make. But, but uh, the, the main themes are really going to be the, the health and legal ramifications. So the, the legislative underpinning, um, how it works and, and the lack of it in some areas. The start of projects, sort of the initial investigations and scoping, what goes right and what goes wrong. Um, and what we know about remediation in terms of industry best practice and where things go off the rails a little bit. And then um, spend a bit of time on filtration, containment, infection prevention, how you stop dust and mold and spores and that kind of thing moving around. Um, so I'll start with a, a little bit of a, um, a question. We, we get uh, asked a lot who we are, how, what do we call ourselves? Um, you know, what, is, what does it mean when we say that we're an IEP or an indoor environmental professional? So my first question to everyone is, do you know what an IEP is? Have you, have you heard the term? Um, have you seen it applied? Do you, do you, have you used an IEP before? Or is it not really something that you had um, a reason to, to engage with previously? Um, there's a few different terms for, for what it is that we do and, and certainly people that come from very varied backgrounds. Um, so I'll give you all a moment to answer um, and, then, and then we'll give a little bit of an insight into what we see, who is an IEP and what they do. So I'll, I'll move to the to the next slide so I can kind of preface what it is I'm going to be talking about next. You may know IEPs as, as a few different names. So um, some of you may be more familiar um, as you're voting with the concept of a hygienist. Um, but there are also different flavors of, of occupational hygienists. If you're in a different part of the world, they're often called industrial hygienists. Um, in Australia, you can have certified, certified occupational hygienists. Um, IEPs is, a, is another sort of name for that. Um, they may well focus on particular aspects of um, indoor environmental quality. Um, so I'm interested to see what people's exposure to this particular topic is. All right, can we have a look at the votes if everyone's had a chance? Can you see the results there, Michael? Um, is that just on the polls? Yeah, just on the polls down the bottom. If you can't see it, um, mm. you've only got 
Um, 7% here saying that, yes, of course, you've only 13% right. saying yes, but I've not needed to engage one before. 47% saying, I think I know, but I'm a little sketchy on what they do. And 31% saying, I don't know. That's, that is really interesting. Um, Cause certainly from a technical perspective, it's really easy to forget that if you know your area really well, a lot of people may not. And that's really the, the, a, a good reason to, to have these seminars. So um, I'll, I'll kind of throw it open to Ian and Cedric here. Um, can you give me a really quick summary from your perspective? What, what is an IEP? What do they do? Where do they, where do they fit um, in terms of, of um, mold and buildings? I'll, I'll throw it to who wants to start? <laughs> I'll start first. Go for so, it, Cedric. Yeah, yeah, I'll start first. And, um, and again, some of the things that uh, as I go through some of the definitions of what we consider an IEP, some things that we need to consider really are looking at experience and training. So if we go back to the origins of the IEP, it was originally coined uh, by the IICRC, the in in Institute for Inspections, Cleaning and Restoration Certification, almost 20 years ago, um, in fact. And they defined an IEP as an individual who is qualified by knowledge, skill, education, training, certification, and experience to perform a variety of things. And that includes an assessment of the microbial ecology of structures, systems, and contents at the job site. So what we're looking at is someone, a professional that is able through their experience and through their training to go on site and to have a look at what are the mold impacts? What are the water damage impacts? What are the odor impacts? And based on their assessment using you know, instruments, uh, they would then create a, a sampling strategy, um, go about sampling the indoor environment, whether it be airborne surface mold, uh, particulates, uh, moisture uh, measurements, and then gather all of that data, send it to the laboratory uh, to get analyzed. And then when the results come back, uh, look at that results, analyze that results, and from there um, develop a, a, a scope of work. And, and that is in essence uh, what an, an IEP does. And, and a little bit later on, um, I'm gonna pass it over to, to Ian who, who go through specifically what an IEP does. But one of the, the, the key things is, you know, experience and qualifications. Where do they get those experience and qualifications? Uh, I mean, you can go through university, you can go through specific um, 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 organizations that provide mold training or um, training uh, related to um, the indoor environment. And all of that may take several years. So on the job work experience is, is also another key factor in terms of understanding um, what an IEP does. But I, I would like to also go on a, a slight tangent and say that you cannot be an expert in every scenario. Um, and, and what is key is that your IEP or the IEP that you are developing a relationship with is a member of a, uh, a wider multidisciplinary team. You know, so um, again, we are blessed that we have each other in mm. terms of the brain's trust that we can call on for very interesting uh, things that come up. And, and as I go through a couple of uh, examples a little bit later on, we'll, we'll see that when it comes to 
the job of an IP or a mole job or an older job, it may come in as, oh, I've got a problem. Can you come and help me? Mm -hmm. um, and, and that then um, really develops um, to something different. And, and as we go through our case studies a little bit later on, um, it, it, the, the thing that comes to mind is the ability to be curious, the ability to be open and to learn from other professionals. So I'll now hand over to, to Ian uh, mm. in terms of what are some tasks that um, we as IEP do. Okay, yeah, thanks, Cedric. Um, yeah, so us as IEPs um, in the mold remediation process really undertake three main tasks. And basically, as Cedric mentioned earlier, we initially undertake some investigations to determine the nature and extent of the microbial contamination in order to develop an independent scope of remedial works. So that's probably the primarily primarily um, the main um, task we perform, but but also um, we also can undertake interim assessments during the remediation, remediation process in order to provide ongoing advice into the refinement of the scope of works that we provided in the initial stage due to site or project complexities. And then the, the, I guess the final aspect of what we do in a mould remediation project is provide an independent post-remediation verification or PRV of the um, remediation work undertaken. So I guess we're, we're engaged to provide guidance and undertake assessments because they're in, we're industry recognised experts in the field of this microbiological assessment and post-remediation verification. And we provide basically unbiased scientific independent advice in initial assessment and throughout the remediation process. We greatly assist with protect, protecting health and well-being of occupants and the working contractors. And we, we, want to, we want to mitigate lost time, money, reputation. And we want to prevent litigation and also reduce remedial costs, settlement amounts and insurance claims. Hmm. And I think yeah. um, just, just to, to round things up, I think that's, that's really important to understand the, the potential impacts. You know, um, you know, looking at the flip side of things, um, hmm. what happens if you don't um, engage in IEP, particularly for those really complex um, uh, jobs where just the, the delay in a week or two can cause significant structural damage, um, can cause um, degradation of infrastructure, uh, contents can be lost, belongings uh, can be lost, and some of this could be sentimental as well. And so we're talking about potentially mental health issues. Um, and, and when we're looking at um, some of the secondary impacts, such as orders, uh, such as complaints from, 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 from tenants, from building um, uh, occupants, all of that um, um, has, has secondary and tertiary impacts, which, you know, when you look at the beginning, what could we have done versus, you know, we are in this particular situation right now, um, you know, help, you know, that's often what we, we, we come up with. Yeah, it's it's an interesting, like you say, Cedric. You can't be an expert in everything, but certainly we we cross a lot of different areas. I mean, we do a lot of mold stuff, but certainly we do indoor air quality. That that sometimes leads into things like clandestine drug lab investigations. It's a lot of different elements that that tie what an IP does together, and a lot of the concepts that we might discuss today, uh, although they're building related, they they cross a couple of boundaries. So. I'll move on to the first sort of area of, of discussion, the first sort of series of concepts that, I, that I'd like to outline. Um, in, in contrast to say asbestos, um, mold 
is sort of a complicated risk. It doesn't have the same kind of regulations. Um, the legislation hasn't really caught up to what we understand about the problem. And so um, from a nuts and bolts perspective, there's no acceptable level of, of mold in a building. There's, there's no set point above which um, uh, you know, a bit of policy kicks in and says, well, now that's dangerous or now it's not. Uh, outside of a few quite specific areas like clean rooms and food prep areas and um, clinical settings and that kind of thing in a building, whether it's domestic or, or commercial, um, there's a bit less hard and fast guidance, which makes it uh, sort of a difficult thing to tackle sometimes, often confounded by the fact that you've also got mold present in the environment naturally, just in the air, depending on the season and the surrounding land use and that kind of thing. And so one of the key things that we will often, we from a legal perspective, it's it's not infrequent that we'll be called in because someone else has done an investigation and they've made recommendations and maybe that's gone well or maybe it hasn't. And then we've been called in to sort of start filling in the gaps or, or pick up pieces after something goes wrong or something like that. And we may be asked to review previous reports. And one of the things that we see um, from time to time is a lack of references, nothing to compare against, whether that's an external sample or somewhere non-impacted in a building. Um, when you're doing this kind of investigation, it's, it's critically important to make sure that you have those reference points that you can compare your problem and non-problem areas against. Um, that's just sort of one of, one of the key things that underpins any real any sampling event, whether it's chemical or biological. Um, the, another complication, uh, particularly relating to mold, is that the health effects are not necessarily dose dependent. They're not necessarily um, a factor of, once again, over this point, we know that X effect will occur. It doesn't really work like that. Um, it's, it's also key to understand who's present, um, whether they have any pre-existing underlying health conditions. If it's a hospital setting, you know you've got sensitive um, individuals present. They may well already be unwell. And so the importance around making sure you have all of the, the underpinning of what you do correct becomes even more critical. Um, documentation is really important. It sounds very dry, but documenting what you do and why is a hugely important um, bit of work. For, in terms of remediation, really good remediators will keep records of actions taken when they did them, what they removed, drying records of materials, what it started out as, uh, how long it's been drying for, what level it's dried to now. Those kinds of records can be hugely valuable, particularly if we're asked maybe to review an ongoing bit of work. How well is this remediation project going? Does anything else need to go on? If those records are being kept, then we can sort of track the progress of the mediation and say, look, this is really about what you can expect. There's really nothing more that can be done or something something additional can be added. That documentation is really key um, to, to making sure that if this does ever end up in court, if it's legally challenged, that you've, you've got your justifications and your, your records along the way to say, well, this is what I did and when, this is why I did it. Um, and you've kind of got that backing to, to explain the steps that you've taken. Um, it's also really important, and we'll pick up on this as we go along, um, the, the importance of not just the initial investigation, but looking at the midway point, what's been pulled out and why, how does it look, does more need to be done, but then the verification at the end, has everything been cleaned, has all the stuff that needs to be removed um, been done in, in the appropriate way, all that sort of stuff um, legally will add into, essentially, if it's ever audited, if it goes to court, that all that documentation essentially supports the work you've done. One we get asked a lot, a lot about, and I'm sure there might be further questions on it from a microbial perspective, 
um, we're often asked, was that pre-event? The insurance company has said, we'll cover this bit of mold, but not that bit of mold because this one relates to the leak in the laundry and that one was something else. We're not touching that. We're often asked to determine what is pre-event, what was pre-existing, that kind of thing. Um, that's a complicated question and that often depends on what you see on site. Um, if it's often very difficult to tease those things apart, but certainly from a microbial perspective, there are some things that we can we can rely on. The types of molds present, um, the amount of moisture in the material can give us some insight into how long a material has been wet for. That might be different between areas. Um, it's not gonna be the focus of this talk, but if there's questions about that, we can certainly dig into it. Um, I'll give a real quick um, case study on, a, on an interesting piece of legal work we did that related to a heritage listed building. Um, it was um, 1880s, I believe, cedar shingled roof that caught fire. Um, and then a, a roof, uh, the roof was never reinstated. And so we were called in to determine whether the building could be remediated. It was heritage listed. It wasn't a question of um, uh, was it was it cost effective or, or what processes specifically had to be applied, but could it, could it be done based upon our assessment of the building? Could it be, could it be put back together given the heritage of the building? And it was in a fairly poor condition. Um, not only had the fire um, damaged a lot of the internal components, decorative and structural, um, but the uh, lack of a roof had meant that a lot of mold growth had, had occurred during that time. Um, this is just some, some gory photos from inside. But Ian and I spent a lot of time very carefully documenting everything that we saw, particularly relating to the structure, how the roof looked, um, how it had been contained from the elements, what kind of moisture was present, um, where it was present. Um, it actually started to rain during our assessment and we took note of where the water was trickling through, where it was running, what the rain was doing, how the humidity and moisture conditions within the building changed. And because we'd kept that degree of documentation, it ended up going through several court proceedings. And we were asked, based upon our assessment, was um, the building able to be remediated was part one. Part two was, had the damage occurred due to the original um, putting the fire out, the you know, fire service coming, or was it due to ongoing neglect, damage to the roof structure, all that kind of thing. But because we'd sort of thoroughly documented everything, um, we had uh, additional information on site. We could start to tease those things apart, which ended up becoming sort of central to the to the second part of the to the court proceedings. Um, so this stuff sometimes does end up becoming um, not only really complicated but very heavily legally scrutinised. So it's really worth the effort keeping um, those records and and making sure you document everything well. Um, so. That's sort of the, the, the legal underpinning. If we start at the beginning of the process, um, I'm, I'm really interested to talk about um, the initial investigation and scoping, what can go wrong, what can go right, um, certainly um, waiting to engage us too long or starting the process after too much time has passed is always a problem. As Cedric mentioned, there's a critical window in which if you don't start the works, then your problem changes from purely moisture to now mold. And then if that goes on, it can become structural and health related. So getting us involved too late can be a problem. Uh, if you've already done some work, you've pulled the walls off, you've put them back on again, and we can't see what's going on underneath. It's really difficult for us to then say, yes, you've done a good job because we've not actually seen anything. So you can get us involved too late in the remediation project as well. Uh, the initial scoping can also not 
look right. Um, if you've started a remediation project and you think you know where you're headed with it, but you've not looked outside of the, the area you anticipated, it can start to look a little bit funny. So I'll, I'll throw this out to the group. I mean, Cedric, you've been called into lots of different mediation projects, not just at the beginning, but partway through or right at the end. Um, what does that change in, in regards to what you can actually do, um, what, what you can now attend to on site if the project has already proceeded? And then are there any warning signs or red flags or anything like that that, let you know, that gives you an intuition as to whether a project is going to succeed or fail? Like, have they done or not done certain things? Um, I'll, I'll throw it over to you. Yep, yep. It's a great question, and and several cases really come to my mind um, in relation to some of the the projects that I've done, particularly for schools and insurance jobs, and and particularly when there is a delay in starting the remediation, as as, as you mentioned, uh, and and a lot of the times it's due to several factors. Number one, budgets, mm. insurances approving for an assessor to get on site or insurance approving for um, the wet materials to be um, removed. So, so that's one really big factor uh, in terms of getting in there quick to deal with the water damage issue mm. before it becomes a mold damage issue. Because when, when it comes to a water damage issue, again, as you mentioned, it can be a couple hundred dollars uh, to remove those wet materials and, and start that drying process before mold starts to grow. Mm. And when mold starts to grow, we're looking at um, remediation of, of wonderful pictures that we, we're seeing right now. Here mm. is, here's an example here of what happened in a, a particular school that I dealt with where um, there was excessive rains and, and there was water ingress into the uh, music room again. Um, again, this because it was um, something that happened during the school holidays, mm. and it wasn't picked up until uh, um, staff came into into the school. We already have a delay, a delay in in remediation action. So we say, say a, a week delay here, and this is this is a week when I'm coming in, and and if you look at that to the picture on the left. Uh, lovely bongos day. Uh, no, that's not vibration. That's <laughs> that's uh, that's wonderful. Uh, a fungal hyphae day uh, growing out of the, the those, uh, those 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 musical instruments. But what we were really um, also interested in when we come to situations like this, where you know you have a music teacher that's uh, that's in tears saying, you know, can I salvage my contents? And and when you look at the the potential damage again, you can see on the right. The, uh, the, the woolen xylophone glockenspiel that has um, more spores and more hyphae starting to grow on the surface. Um, again, things that we need to consider are moisture damage because for some of these instruments, they are, are sensitive to moisture. And so quick action is very important. So, so in this particular case study, um, um, we arrived on site and began itemizing the scope of works. Again, this is what an IEP does itemizing the potential extent of contamination that has occurred uh, throughout uh, the various contents and determining, you know, can these musical instruments be saved, particularly those that uh, are sensitive to moisture. And, and so, so we went about looking at uh, these, these contents and musical instruments. And by the end of the day, we're able to develop a, 
uh, a preliminary scope of works. And this is very important as well, that you engage an IEP that has the experience and that has the, the, um, the knowledge to be able to develop scope of works that you can action quickly rather than waiting two weeks for you know, a, a report that tells you what to do. So having that, that relationship with um, the, the IEP uh, and uh, it's, it's important to get that quick action. Okay, so, uh, so we developed a, a preliminary scope of works by the end of the day um, with the focus on trying to salvage some of the, the more wooden uh, musical instruments that were sensitive to, to water damage. Unfortunately, it took another further week before any actions could happen. And now we're looking at a two to three week time frame where water is now you know, seeping into some of these uh, water damage um, 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 building materials and now um, impacting the wooden instruments. And so unfortunately, um, more started to proliferate and grow um, basically on every single uh, uh, item in that that musical room, and so um, they were un we were unable to to salvage uh, many of the, uh, the the instruments because again, not only was it because it was um, mall damage, but because of the water impacting on the 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 the, um, the, the wood itself, which again um, ha has the impact on the musical instruments, and and you might think, oh, it's just contents; it can be replaced, but there's another aspect to secondary and tertiary damage, and that is this the, the the loss of musical instruments or contents right has resulted in the entire school music program being impacted because these key instruments uh, were unable to be remediated and with our current situation with with covid and and getting supplies in shipping restocking of items that meant even further impacts to the music program for the following term so this not has not only immediate impacts, but long-term impacts in terms of education for, for this particular case study. And so there's several key actions that uh, I want to point out here. And the first is, if you're an organization that is um, managing properties, do you have some sort of a disaster management plan? Uh, we've, we've got particular packages here in, in GrimCap looking at mold management plans. And, and it's about what you as an organization uh, can do in terms of immediate actions. Are they documented? What should we undertake uh, to try and minimize our losses? Do you have access to a panel of assessors, builders, remediators, trades that are trained to do the appropriate things? And, and later on when uh, uh, Ian is talking about stuff, you know, untrained uh, people that go in sometimes create even more damage um, when it comes to, uh, to, to more growth. Okay, so again, th this particular first, first case study is, is it's one where we need to understand that quick action is, is very important. Mm. Yeah. My second case study, again, goes back to what I talked about, about an IAP being curious and being able to be multidisciplinary. So for, for this particular uh, example, uh, again at the school, um, we were called out um, because the school was saying, oh, no, we've got intermittent orders, okay? And occupants of the classroom were reporting intense and at times overpowering uh, orders within the classroom. So 
the school did all sorts of things to try to, to, to manage the odor from um, those little bags of uh, um, odor, uh, deodorizers. Um, no, that didn't work. Um, so they, they, they thought, okay, let, let's call in the plumbers, the heavy duty trades to come in. Um, so several trades were, were engaged and over several months uh, looked at things like the sewer, a capping of pipes, as you can see on the left um, side of, um, to, to, because they thought it was a sewer problem because it kind of smelled like a sewer issue. They, they, they also did um, things like extending the vent um, over the roof line so that um, none of that odors uh, come seeping back into uh, the classroom. And, um, and, and they investigated some of the, 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 the sewer pipes for, for any leakage and broken, but again, none of that um, seemed to, to do anything because the odor was still intermittently coming back. So the next train of thought was, how about rats? How about pests? Again, so they engaged um, uh, pest controllers, but no pests were found. So green cap was called. <laughs> so, uh, and, and this was an interesting case because it, it went over two to three months. My first two um, visits, um, I did not detect any odors. And I was kind of thinking, uh, this might, it's just like a spirit or something. Every time I come, it goes away. And, and, and it was really, really weird. But on the third visit, when I, uh, it was a really, really cold morning um, that, that, uh, that I uh, arrived at the school. And, and I could smell the, the, the really pungent um, odor. So as soon as I smelled that odor, I knew what it was already, okay? So, so um, but again, being open, being curious. So I had to look around the, the external of the building and noticed on the, the, the fascia of the building, there were a lot of condensation and drips happening. So to me, it's like, hmm, condensation happening here. So, so what's going on uh, in terms of the building envelope? Okay, so, um, so I then began to be a bit more curious and look into the ceiling structure and the ceiling space. And what I encountered was firstly, a really strong pungent odor and I quickly identified that the odor was coming from wet insulation. Okay, so wet insulation from the existing, uh, what we call here in, in, in Australia, anticon, so anti-condensation or sarking on the uh, metal roof. Okay, so, so okay, yay, we, we've discovered the issue. The issue is, you know, wet insulation. This is the odor, that's it, case closed. Um, you know, um, that, that's all that we need to um, um, deal with. But again, as, as we, we talked about earlier in terms of the scope being a little bit bigger, as you start to investigate a little bit more, as you can see in the, the, the picture on the right um, of the insulation, but we're beginning to see condensation and now mold growth. So visible mold growing. And so as you become more curious and look at, you know, what is the extent of this, this condensation happening? And it appeared that there has been a failure in that, in, in that sucking or the anticon in preventing condensation. Or, and again, as I mentioned before, we are not, we are unable to be experts in everything. Okay, so, so in this particular case, you know, it appears that 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 uh, anticorner, that sucking was not doing what it was supposed to do and preventing condensation. So now not only is the insulation getting wet, causing a pungent odor, but now we have widespread mold growth on the underside of the metal roof um, throughout the, the, the classroom. And so here is where we need to uh, be able to um, go to our brain's trust, go to standards, go to 
uh, procedures that we currently have. And for this particular case, the ASNZS 4200.2, which is the standard for pliable building membranes and underlay underlays, uh, a key resource in terms of have they installed the uh, insulation and sucking appropriately? You know, have they in fact um, chosen the right type of insulation? Again, all of this, this uh, as an IEP research and learning and being open. And so these are basically two examples, Michael, that come to my mind in terms of when we're talking about delay in remediation actions and when that initial scope uh, was incorrect and the impact area uh, was a little bit wider than expected. That's fantastic. Thank you for those, Cedric. I mean, an another thing that we see a lot at the um, outset of a remediation project, I think that often limits the, the project such that it'll, it's going to be very difficult to, to, to achieve what's required, is there being too many limitations on what we can do on site, whether that's a limitation on the specific area, the client might say, we only want you to look in this particular room or not in the roof space, or we only want you to look at surfaces, but not the air, or we don't want you to look at the moisture, those kinds of things are always red flags. That's often an indicator that it's going to be extremely challenging to scope it correctly or give them what they want. Um, uh, related to that, a thing we see all the time that will often make a remediation much slower, much more expensive, require multiple attendances, that kind of thing, will simply be access. Um, there's many times that we turn up and um, we'll say, oh, we need to get into the basement. And someone will say, oh, actually, we don't have the key for that. Can't unlock the door. Sorry, you can't actually look at the basement, even though that's where the problem is. Can you do something else? We see that all the time. Holes not being able to be cut or drilled to, so we can't look in a wall cavity or can't look in something like that because they say, oh, no, we prefer you not. Just look around and, and tell us what you can tell us. It makes it very difficult. Um, not being able to access a roof or a subfloor, whether that's because there's no access or we weren't things like we weren't told that we need to bring a particularly tall platform ladder. They've got, you know, four meter ceilings or something. Oh, we should have told you that, but we didn't. So we ask a lot of questions at the outset about where we're going to be looking. Do you have keys? Is the maintenance person going to be there? Making sure we've got trades present if need be, making sure we've got locksmiths, that kind of thing, so that we don't get stuck. Um, so, I mean, Ian, you've you've gone to a lot of different projects. Um, what, what do you come up against often when you're being asked, do this or don't do that? And what, what, kind of, what kind of problems do you see happen here? I guess all those items you listed up in the slide here, Michael, really restrict on what us as IAPs can or cannot say in our reports or what we can or not or can include or cannot include in our scope for remedial works we develop mm -hmm. for these remediation projects. So, you know, I guess if we can't get into adjoining areas to delineate, to delineate the impacts, then we can't assure that our recommendations are complete. Mm -hmm as water and moisture and subsequent well growth do not recognise these boundaries, such as, you know, like tenancy boundaries. Mm. Um, prior to remedial, remedial work starting, if we can't access, access subfloor, subfloors um, and the like wall cavities um, to inspect conditions within these impacted areas, then we have to write requirements for, in, for an independent intrusive investigation to be undertaken during the initial stages of the remediation project in order to fully assess the delineate impacts. And obviously, mm. that will increase I guess our costs and obviously the 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 owners' costs or the the insurance company's costs. Mm -hmm. um, we often get well, don't can you not sample this? Can you not sample in here? We don't want to know here, etc. Um, the conditions here. So if we can't sample 
to confirm conditions. We can't provide a full assessment on these conditions. So we have limitations in the guidance we can provide. Mm. For example, if we don't take any air samples, we can't assess if the mould is impacting on the airspace in the areas close to the source of the mould and, and even in adjoining areas. So we can't offer any guidance on whether or not we need to restrict access to the mould, the, obviously the impact area or even in adjoining areas. If we can't collect service samples, we can't accurately delineate surface impacts. And I guess if we can't collect moisture measurements, we're often told that, how do we know how far the moisture has gone and how potentially where it's potentially traveled to and, and into what building materials? Yeah, yeah. These all ultimately mean that we have to re-attend site during the remediation projects in order to fully assess conditions and then this impacts in order and the impacts in order to provide additional advice. Occasionally we even get asked to perform independent PRVs, which are post-remediation verification assessments after all in after all reinstatement works have been completed. However, we're unable to verify whether these whether materials within cavities or voids have been cleaned or dried adequately. Therefore, we cannot confirm the adequacy of the works being undertaken, but only assess conditions within the habitable areas. It's always our preference to perform all PRVs after, soon after remedial works have been completed, and that's before reinstatement work reinstatement works have commenced. Basically, the PRV we should basically in the PRV we should provide a statement confirming reinstatement works can start if conditions are acceptable and have been returned back to normal levels. Mm. Yeah, really, it really puts some um, some terrible breaks on the process. You, you, there's really very difficult to progress things when when we can't even really say how big of a problem it is. Um, yeah. a, another thing that we get asked a lot, and we certainly see very varied approaches to, and there's, there's this is a very content rich bit. So if there's questions for it, um, please please come back to this one. Um, but in terms of remediation processes, what works and what doesn't, we get asked this all the time. We see very varied approaches because remediation, uh, at least in Australia, you, there's no, anyone can call themselves a mold remediator, really. There's no, there's no um, regulation saying you can and you can't. There are accreditations, there's training, there's certification. There are things that exist that can sort of um, highlight to you how well qualified or the experience of a remediator um, and uh, Cedric referred to previously the, the IICRC. Um, they have a range of different um, guides and standards for not just mold remediation, water, they do fire, they do a range of different stuff. And so the documents that we um, uh, refer to a lot are the IICRC S500 and S520. They're the standard and, and reference guides for professional water damage restoration and professional mold damage restoration. They um, outline a, a formal uh, a formalized structure of how you approach these things um, based upon um, the industry's experience expert opinions that kind of thing they're very well referenced and researched documents um, so we can we can come back to that if there's more questions but certainly in terms of key failure points the things that we see a lot of is immediately a failure in drying um, in, in actually source rectification. And the number of times we'll say, oh, we wipe the mold off, but it keeps coming back. We wipe the mold and it keeps coming back again and again. But if you ask, have you fixed whatever the problem is? They may often say, the client might say, we don't actually know what the problem is. Or we think it's a problem with the roof, but we've never looked. Or it's probably the old plumbing, um, but we've never had it fixed. It, like you, you'll never attend to the, to the problem if you don't deal with the source, which is always gonna be moisture, um, which, often ends up in not knowing when to dry. Um, remediation projects can go well off the rails if 
you let it get wet, it gets moldy, months go by, you pull off the wall linings, it's terribly moldy, you decide then you're going to blast hot air all over it and you spray spores everywhere. Knowing when to dry is really key. As knowing as well as knowing how to contain your work area, what, what goes into making sure the problem doesn't spread everywhere. Um, now, there is um, a range of different processes. I mean, I will, I will ask a really brief question to the group, but we can, we can come back to um, it in more detail. We often make joke about spray, pray and walk away. There's a lot of people that just you know, spray chemicals around and say they've remediated the mold. But there's a lot of different techniques. Uh, and certainly there's a spectrum from removal of the material through to what we call abrasive clean. There is a detailed clean, there's chemical treatment, there's encapsulation. Um, just as a really brief throw out to the group, I'm sure we'll all have a, a similar consensus on this. Um, what, what is the relative effectiveness of say, chemical treatment and encapsulation versus removal and abrasive cleaning? Who, who wants to start with that one? <laughs> I'll have, a, I'll have a crack. Um, <laughs> but I'm always say to my, um, my, I guess my the clients, be very concerned if your remediation contractor suggests to spray chemicals to kill the mold. Like you said, internationally renowned remediation guidance document S520, which is a standard for professional mold remediation, states that to successfully success remediate mold impacts, you need to remove the mold, not try and kill it. Mm. Um, I guess the way in which mold removal is done is based on the porosity of the building material impacted, if it's non-porous, semi-porous or porous, and also the level of mold impact, is it several spores or actual mold growth? Mm. Simply spraying a chemical mold growth is a recipe for disaster as many marketed mold killing chemicals are water-based and contain active agents which bleach the mold. So what you're doing here is giving the mold extra moisture, aggravating it, in which is likely to increase sporulation and then turning the structures to a lighter colour so it's less visible to the naked eye. The mould would undoubtedly be coming back even with potentially, I guess it can spread more to joining materials or areas due to increased correlation, especially if drying has been inadequate. Yeah, absolutely. I might I might jump us ahead because I can see where we're, we'll run short on time otherwise. Um, but I'll keep going through because I know that there's a few other things, a few key concepts I'd like to hit if that's all right, guys. Sure. Um, there are a range of documents out there. Um, please ask us if you'd like for more information on any of them, but there are a few um, good, not only international, but Australian-based bits of information. Um, one of the real key things that we see go um, wrong, but sometimes go right, is containment, containment and filtration. What does it mean when we talk about containing a remediation area? Um, certainly putting up, um, putting in filters is one thing we see a bit, but actually containing the area, making sure that spores, dust, et cetera, doesn't move, becomes increasingly more important when you're working in aged care facilities, um, maybe high risk areas where you know there are people that are unwell. So um, I really want to uh, talk a bit more about cross-contamination of unimpacted areas, um, what, you, what you do to contain things like duct work and that kind of thing. So it's a really critical area and I might throw it to Ian again yeah, to sure. talk a bit about containment. Uh, I know you've got some case studies. Um, yeah, I've got a so I can, here, so. So I'll I'll skip to the next slide and I'll let you talk a bit about containment. Yeah, look, Michael, my, in my experience, containment is one of the most important aspects of, mold of any mold remediation program. If containment is not done right, you'll have issues down the track and project costs will increase significantly. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, as mentioned above, appropriate containment was critical in all high-risk areas, which is not only health-related scenarios, but like healthcare and aged care facilities, 
facilities, but also protection of priceless artifacts. Mm. My first example here is an aged care community centre containing swimming pool, hydrotherapy pool. So here, this is where the mole growth was a result of poor ongoing ventilation, basically from the day dot that this built, this property was doomed, or this swimming pool was pretty much doomed. It's been, um, I think it was about 12 years old, but they had mole pretty much within the first two years, but nothing mm. was ever done. So which basically this poor ventilation led to severe condensation issues, which in turn caused substantial mold growth within the pool area adjoining gymnasium toilets. So you can see the mold there present on the on the diffusers on the air conditioning system, mm. air conditioning system above the pool and also um, on the cold surfaces within adjoining, but that's that's the one of the toilet facilities there. Um, so yeah, basically that, that area got closed down to a certain degree and we got the call, we did the initial investigation. Um, and basically prepared a, a scope of remedial works. Um, as it's an, obviously a, a um, aged care facility, it contained what was the most critical aspect of the project. In order to prevent airborne mold spores and dust generated during the remedial works have an impact on the joining areas of this centre, which contains staff and susceptible residents, because obviously they still wanted to use other aspects of the community centre. Mm. For this job, containment was really pretty simple. Um, all the contract had to do was seal up some doorways in between the mould impacted areas and the remainder of the community centre. Um, however, we needed to confirm that this simple containment was adequate, and so we performed a smoke test. So you can see in that right-hand slide picture there, that's um, the contractor using a smoke machine. Um, I was on the other side of the door during this process um, and basically on, on the phone to him highlighting the areas where the where basically the smoke was coming through the containment and um, another guy was there basically sticking um, more tape onto those areas so we knew that that was a good good containment nothing could get out of that mm. um, probably a point to remember is also when you perform smoke tests like this make sure to isolate the smoke detectors to prevent the fire <laughs> didn't happen in this case but I was aware of it and we obviously isolated those before going forward so um, also, next slide, um, in this project, we had to protect the pool water from basically the debris being generated during the removal work. So you can see along the base of that, up above that window, the lower window there, there's obviously a lot of removal works going on with the plasterboard. So we don't want any of that plasterboard going into the wall. So we basically, the uh, contractor built a structural hoarding to prevent not only debris falling into water, but also the workers. Mm. Project was a success. PRV clearance was given soon after all of the mortar materials removed and all, and all cleaned successfully. Mm. So yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's a good example one. of where simple containment worked, nothing got through. Um, the centre was able to basically run as normal. Obviously, the swimming pool was out of action and the gymnasium, but um, yeah, that was, a, that, was a, that was a good job. Um, next one is a larger um, project, um, quite intense, a lot of interested parties. Um, again, high risk, but not for health-related scenarios, but protection of priceless artefacts. So the second example is um, a large government facility containing historical plant artefacts and records plus an adjoining DNA laboratory tenancy. So what happened here, um, significant leak occurred on a weekend whilst the facility was not occupied by staff. The leak occurred within the DNA lab located in the proximate centre of the building, ironically, the leak was from a sink in, in the laboratory that was never used from a flexible pipe, which is obviously, you guys would know, it was quite a common common mm. event in these, these kind of things, flexible hoses. 
Um, the resulting flood impacted not only the areas of DNA lab, but also um, the adjoining landlord controlled areas containing historical plants, plant records and seeds and artifacts. So you can see there is the second photo, there's hundreds of, um, of these um, shelves uh, containing um, basically historical references to lots of stuff, um, lots of plant seeds um, examples. Some of it, some even some of the specimen artifacts were from Matthew Flinders' explorations of Australia in the late 1700s. So these items were literally priceless. So containment was really critical in this project, really critical. Um, and probably one of the most crucial aspects of the project. Um, we do want obviously cross-contamination occurring not only from health point of view, but also from impacts on these precious artifacts. Um, so we had to, with the contract, construction contractor in, involved the installation of temporary containment walls. You can see in both those pictures there, plus entry and exit chambers, which is visible in the second photo. Into the remediation areas in order that Negative, negative air containment could be maintained during the entire project. Again, we uh, go to the next slide. Mm. Um, smoke tests in each of, these, each of these separate areas were performed to confirm containment was adequate in preventing cross-contamination between the areas, between these areas and areas outside the remediation zones. As you can see from the far right photo, sometimes you have to use a lot of tape to seal off cable trays and conduits running between areas. Another good point to note is all in these larger smoke testing um, practices is good practice to notify the local fire authority of when smoke tests are being performed. Mm -hmm. As when the smoke is vented out to the outside after completion of tests, they're, they're aware not to respond if they get phone calls from the public with smoke coming from the building. Um, again, another fairly simple project apart from the containment, um, bit of impact, um, but again, successful project PRV, PRV clearance was given soon after all the mold materials were removed and, and all remaining materials were cleaned successfully. Yeah. I would like to get to questions but you do have a good domestic example. Yeah, Can I've you, got, I'll, you give, I'll give I'll give I'll give one. I've got two but I'll, I'll give one. So right. I'll quickly go to the first one. Yeah. So let's there's an example of when cross-contamination has occurred due to zero or poor containment installed. Um, this example here is when, where the initial build and remediation contract engaged by the insurance company and it took drying works to award a damaged wall in the children's bedroom, adjacent ongoing leak with the adjoining laundry room. However, the contract did not install any containment or remove any, any of the mouldy contents present within the bedroom. They set up forced dry airing, dry, dry equipment. However, no containment was installed to the bedroom doorway or no HEPA air filtration was set up. Unfortunately, as a result of these actions, the owners and their children were, after a few weeks of this equipment running, started to feel sick with respiratory issues. Both of the uh, um, occupiers or owners of the building were local GPs who, after research into mould and associated health conditions, plus how to and how not to successfully remediate mould, requested they were re that they were re relocated for the duration of the project after the whole house and contents were to be cleaned. So, and they had quite a few contents from that second slide. Um, the insurance company had to entertain their request due to potential legal action as a result of the inadequate actions of the initial building remediation contractor, who did not simply contain the bedroom prior to setting up their equipment, which ultimately spread spores throughout the house, uh, which also impacted, well, obviously, obviously other building materials within the building and also contents throughout the building. I guess if the contaminant had been installed to the bedroom doorway from the inset of the project, 
then remediation works would have cost in the region of about five to ten thousand dollars and we've taken about three to four weeks to complete with the occupants still living at home however due to the complexity of the multiple parties involved in the project including lawyers on the on the um both sides plus the additional cleaning work and accommodation costs plus settlement fees the project costs escalated northwards of a hundred thousand dollars plus the eventual settlement costs of the property at market value and the contents exceeded $700,000. So that's, you know, that's, that's a pretty big jump up from five to 10K to $800,000. Oh yeah. That's just because of the insurance, uh, the insurance um, contracted not putting containment up on that single doorway. Mm. Yeah. That's... So that's the best example I've got of where con uh, containment has cost caused, obviously the lack of containment has caused Cross contamination issues, which has obviously yeah. expediated the the costs and also um, increased the costs and also um, uh, I think it was about twelve to eighteen months this this project went on for as opposed to you know three to four weeks. Yeah, well, I might I might wrap it up there and hopefully leave a bit of time for questions. So I'll stop sharing my screen, um, and and hopefully now we've got a an opportunity now. If there's any bits that people want to ask more about or particular concepts or that kind of thing. Um, would be great to, to have some questions. Uh, Mike, I do have a couple of questions here in the chat. Um, Brilliant. If you want to run through them. Um, sure. I think Cedric's answered a couple in the chat, but I'll just, I'll read them out just in case so you can um, sure. <laughs> talk to it. Um, Tabitha asks that, so in the example there where the mold is growing in the roof at the school, um, what are the health ramifications for staff working in that space if there's no remediation? Yeah, that's a, that is a as an interesting one. Cedric's 100% right there on the exposure pathways. Sometimes things, depending on the construction of the building, um, it can be really well contained within a within the actual building envelope. That doesn't mean it it won't get out or it can't get out. It just means their exposure is likely minimal. It might be dependent upon lots of different stuff. But of course, the difficulty with those things is they do produce odors. They do off gas. But also, if anyone, if that's not Refix if no one takes record of that in future if remedial works or if uh, sorry even just um, building works go on let's say someone wants to put in a new powerpoint and they cut a hole in the wall and they don't realize the other side is completely moldy you've made an enormous problem because you've spread spores everywhere so the health effects can be very variable um, but leaving something in in place where there's a potential problem can be a much bigger problem in the future um we also have a question from luke um he says uh, from a property management perspective, is there any mould that is less problematic and toxic uh, that generally does not require major remediation, i.e. pink mould versus black mould? <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with, with Cedric's response there as well. If if there is mould, it's, it's a problem and it's generally always a, a moisture problem. Um, there are some things that do turn up before others or after others or based upon the nature of the material, but totally agree, irrespective of the mold type, it does point to an issue and an issue that needs to be solved. I don't think I would ever be comfortable saying, oh, that's mold's fine to leave there. Don't worry. Even though the whole wall is moldy, it's not the bad kind. I don't think I would ever say those words. You really always do have to remediate stuff. If you can see visible mold, you know, you've got a problem. And this is a secondary question from Luke. Um, is there a product generally used to treat surface mold, i.e. when bathrooms, exhaust fans and windows don't adequately ventilate the bathroom? Um, I've talked all over the last couple of questions. I'm happy to do this one as well, or if someone else wants to jump in, what works to, to clean a moldy bathroom, guys? 
well, I'll, I'll jump in with um, um, being uh, coming from an IEP perspective is and a safety perspective is if we follow the hierarchy of control in terms of getting rid of um, of, of reducing a hazard and a, pop, uh, a and a risk elimination. So if we can eliminate the causes and the reasons for why mold is growing. Um, that should be our number one priority. And even the World Health Organization um, uh, guidelines say, you know, the, the actions mm -hmm. to, to remediate and to control uh, water moisture from coming into the situation in the first place should have priority. Unfortunately, in this particular situations, which we all come across many, many times, ventilation in an inadequate or they do not switch on the, vent, um, the exhaust fans, resulting in moist air in, in that environment. Okay, For mold to grow, you need moisture, you need some sort of an organic matter, and that could be dust. So this, oh, it could be skin flakes. It could be the soap scum that comes off uh, when you, you're in that, that bathroom environment. So moisture, um, food source, and over time, mold will grow. So if we, again, eliminate, if we can through exhaust and through proper cleaning of, of your, 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 your bathroom or whatever surface that you have, that should take priority rather than waiting for the mold to come and then, oh my, what do we need to do? Let's get some spray and wipe and, 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 and magically it disappears. Again, all, uh, many of those chemicals and products are chlorine-based, chlorine which is, again, we've talked about all the different um, ways of Getting, getting rid of mold by making mm. them invisible. But really, if we can focus on behaviors of switching on exhaust fans um, before and after um, you've had that, that bath, getting rid from a housekeeping perspective of potential organic matter food source and quick action when you see any leaks, mm. you know, simply getting onto them in terms of drying it up, um, immediately and, and from a, um, a tenant property management perspective, um, you have to have that relationship with your, um, your, your tenants such that they report to you, you then make sure that you action, um, action it as quick as, as, as soon as possible. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, one of the, the a, a quick final point I'll make is um, I see a lot of people say I use essential oils or I use bleach or I use vinegar, or I use different things. And often um, continually wiping over a surface, particularly a painted surface or a finished surface, a sealed surface with a solvent or um, a chemical agent will slowly break that surface down and make it more porous and then more likely to grow have mold growth so if you have a painted wall and then you keep rubbing essential oils and other stuff you probably end up taking off whatever protective coating is there and making it more likely to have mold growth so it, it can be counterproductive in the long run to just wipe and wipe and wipe and wipe and wipe uh, i can see we've got one more question there what happens if you don't have an exhaust fan in your bathroom um that's a that's a complicated question that depends what your ventilation is like whether you attempt to open windows um, if there's a ventilation if there's other ventilation you can have in your house if there's other extraction fans dehumidifiers do exist you can put them in place although they're obviously not as effective as actually getting that air out um, it's <laughs> you could have colder showers if you really wanted but that depends on your constitution really um, it's that's going to be a bit of an uphill battle. Um, my my advice is 
try to install an exhaust fan because otherwise you're really fighting uphill to try to capture that moisture in a dehumidifier or something like that. If you were going to go that route, I would suggest you go for an, an actual dehumidifier and not just moisture absor absorbing powders or those things that really don't work that, that well. And make um, sure it's plumbed. Yes, yes, make sure it's plumbed. Um, I can see we're running out of time. We've got two more questions. Recommendation on a household HEPA filter and what is the cost range to remediate a moldy problem that is isolated to a particular wall in an office? Um, in terms of a household HEPA filter, I, I, don't, I don't have a specific one on the top of my head. Generally, um, you will see a, a better one will have, um, it'll conform to a particular series of standards. It'll say conforms to standard ISO and then a series of what it actually conforms to. Look for those cheap online um, things that that don't meet certain, they might meet minimum standards for electrical safety, but they don't meet the, the rating of a HEPA filter. Look those up and check to see if it does. So I don't have, I don't have one off the top of my head, but as a general bit of advice, look what can standards, standards they conform to. Second one, how much does it cost to remediate? Does anyone else want to jump in on that one? <laughs> it's a very open-ended question. It's a huge question, but does someone want to give the, the 60 second potted summary for how much does mold remediation cost? <laughs> it depends on the size, how big it is. Um, yeah. um, the, are we removing gyprock? Are we removing um, asbestos containing materials? Is there carpet? Is there, yep. So um, it can range from a couple hundred dollars to a couple of thousand dollars, depending on the, the amount of uh, uh, contaminated material that needs to be removed and con where the containment is it's going to be in place mm. and where the, whether that wall connects to another. So like I said, a couple hundred dollars to a couple of thousand dollars depends. Yeah, very much so. If you have to move out of your tenancy into another, you've got relocation costs. Mm. It, can, it can be quite multivariate. Unfortunately, it's not a flat answer on that one. Right. Oh, cool. I, I think um, that's all the questions. And um, yeah, just on time, or a couple minutes over. Um, I'd just like to say from a Marsh perspective, um, thank you to Michael, Cedric and Ian for their time today. Um, you know, it's very, very informative and I'm sure hopefully we'll get another, um, see you guys again down the track for another Marsh webinar. Um, Absolutely. And thank you also to um, everyone that attended. Um, keep an eye out in your email for the uh, recording as well, as well as the slides and more information to contact the guys. Um, but yeah, is there anything you wanted to say, Michael, before we um, send everyone off? No, th thanks for having us. Reach out to, to GreenCap if you need some, some help. You don't know which way to go. Um, you, you are at any stage of a project, please do give us a call. Um, it's, you, you can talk to us and we'll, we'll at least try to set you on the right path if we're directly involved or not. Yep, and, and I would just like to add that in the coming weeks, uh, we are also developing a mold hazard awareness online course. So mm. keep your eyes out for, uh, uh, for, for GreenCap and uh, we're, we're gonna be uh, releasing that very, very soon. Awesome, thanks guys. Thank you. Have a good day, see ya. Bye.